Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you that these online resources are never meant to be a substitute for God's good plan for you to be present, connected, and serving in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you live in the West Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we encourage you to come check out one of our Sunday services. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your the life. Word of God right now. So i uh, got a lot of work to do today, and so we're going to jump right in to the book of Genesis, where we've been. We've been uh, slowing down intentionally to zoom in the past few weeks on the origin story of humanity, such important issues, important topics that we're dealing with, especially in the culture uh, that we live in today. Uh, two weeks ago, you'll remember that we talked about uh, what it means to be a man. We zoomed in on the origin story of humanity, and we found truth to teach us what it means to be a man. We saw that a biblical man is a leader, a biblical man is a provider, and a biblical man is a protector. We saw that two weeks ago. Last week, we zoomed in on the origin story of humanity, and we saw what it means to be a woman that a biblical woman is an indispensable a helper, and a biblical woman is an empowered a nurturer. We saw that from the origin story of humanity in Genesis 2. And today, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to be placing a manhood and womanhood in its biblical context of marriage, just as we find it in Genesis chapter 2. And so I said a few weeks ago that we can't really understand a manhood or womanhood without understanding marriage. And while not everyone will be married, we all have to understand marriage in order to understand what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. So zooming in again on the origin story of humanity, I invite you to take your Bible and go with me to Genesis chapter 2. One last time in Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 to 25 is where we've been and today we finish off chapter 2 as we continue our verse by verse study through the book of Genesis. Again, forming and reinforcing a biblical worldview. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you can put up your hand, and one of the ushers would love to put a copy of God's Word into your hand. We'd love you all to have a copy of the Bible, and if you don't own a Bible today, we'd love you to take that Bible home. It'll be our gift to you. We'd love you to take it home and read it and have your life transformed by the Word of God. Genesis chapter 2, starting from verse 18 and reading down to verse 25. Again, zooming in on the origin story of humanity. This is what it says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, a fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man then the man said this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
All right, we have here, as we zoom in on the origin story of humanity, essentially the meaning of marriage. And I want you to understand that in the days that we're living in, you cannot take for granted that everyone understands the meaning of marriage. In fact, marriage is under attack, and we as the church cannot afford to be confused. We have to understand the meaning of marriage and the definition of marriage as the foundational institution of all society, okay? So this is where we're gonna start. Point number one is this, the meaning of marriage, I need you to understand this, the meaning of marriage is rooted in creation, okay? It's not rooted in someone's ideas or someone's opinions or what someone in this world thinks is best to them. It's rooted in creation. I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 18 again. The Bible says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so right away, what I want to highlight for you is five very instructive words right from verse 18 as we continue to zoom in on the origin story of humanity and the centrality of marriage as the foundation of all that God will build through the man and the woman. Verse 18 says, then the Lord God said. Five words that you can't miss. Five words that you can't skip over. Five words that the world hates. Then the Lord God said, where should we begin when seeking to understand the purpose and design of marriage? You must begin with what God has said. You must begin with the designer himself. Church, Christians, people called by the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by his grace, God has said some things. God has documented some things. God has embedded some things into the fabric of reality, which is easily observable and very logical. So naturally, it makes complete sense that when we're seeking to understand marriage, when we're seeking to understand the design of God in marriage, when we hear things from the world around us about what marriage is, we should always go back to consult who? The designer, God himself, the eternal, self-existent, and transcendent creator. Marriage is God's idea. You've heard that before. I just want you to think about this for a moment. I just want you to think about the arrogance and the pride of challenging or seeking to correct or seeking to abandon the very designer in an attempt to understand what he has designed. Just, can you just get that in your mind for a second? The, the level of arrogance and the level of pride it would take for someone to say, you designed something, but I don't care what you say. I want to decide what it actually is. Can you imagine someone with no credibility challenging Alexander Graham Bell's design of the very first telephone when nothing like it existed prior? Can you imagine an amateur with a paintbrush in hand criticizing Leonardo da Vinci's color choices? Can you imagine someone randomly picking apart Gutenberg's design for the printing press or Edison's design for the light bulb or Franklin's design for the lightning rod? I mean, most people look at designers and inventors and they look at them and they have a level of respect for what they have created. They're viewed as experts. They're viewed as the authority concerning the thing they have made. It makes complete and logical sense. But in our society, we look at God and we look at his design for marriage and we have in our hearts contempt. Or we look at what he has said, and we have in our hearts suspicion. Or we look at what he has done in marriage, 
And many in our culture are very angry about it. We're going to be diving in today, loved ones, to God's design for marriage, what it means. But you need to understand that it's rooted in creation. And I'm going to say some things right from God's word that may make you uncomfortable. And you're going to get uncomfortable because you've been listening to what the world is telling you about what marriage is rather than consulting what the designer himself has said. So as we jump in, I just need you to be praying. Lord, I open my heart to what you have said. I want to open my heart to your design. I want to hear and listen and embrace everything that you desire for marriage. So, what has God said about marriage? A few things. Let's start with this. God has said that marriage is a union on the screen for you. Number one is this. A union of exclusivity. A one man and one woman. Now, if you go out into your workplace and you say one man, one woman, you're under attack. If you go out into the culture and you say one man and one woman, you're, you're under attack. But listen, loved ones, this is what God has said. And we care supremely about what God has said. Look at verse 23. The Bible says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So I want you to remember a bit of the context. That just prior to Adam's deep sleep, remember we just read about that? God put him in a deep sleep. Just prior to his deep sleep, all the animals were paraded before him. He was given the task to name all the animals. And the Bible says in that context this, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, in the midst of all the beauty that God has created, there was not found a helper fit for Adam. So you can imagine Adam's surprise. You can imagine his excitement when he wakes up and amidst God's creation, uh, the woman is in front of him, brought to him by God. He's like, the animals are amazing, God. I mean, all that you made, but this woman, this is awesome. This is amazing. He looks at her essentially when he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Essentially he says, this one right here is like me because she came from me. This one right here, she has her source in God just like I have my source in God. This one right here, she's been created beautifully and distinctly to compliment me. Uh, the one who has created me in the image of God has created her in the image of God. This one is special. This one is the one I've been waiting for at last. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And Adam is powerfully attracted to the woman. And Adam is filled with love for her. And Adam moves towards her because now there is someone before him, a helper that is fit for him in every way. She is physically fit for him. She is emotionally fit for him. She is intellectually fit for him. She is spiritually fit for him. She is a perfect match. And for all the reasons we've discussed in the previous two sermons, this is all intentional by God. Namely, marriage as the exclusive monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. And I need to say in our cultural context without taking this for granted, one biological man and one biological woman. This is what God has said. Notice verse 24 now. Therefore, since, since woman was created from the man, therefore, since she is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, since she has been made from him and for him and equal to him and complementary to him because of this, what? Notice it. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Notice. A man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to, watch this, his wife. The, the origin story of humanity and the founding of the institution of marriage defines the terms. The designer defines the terms. One man and one woman in an exclusive monogamous relationship with one another. Now, as I alluded to earlier, many in our world would ask, uh, and even very sincerely, isn't love love? Right? You've heard the slogan. I mean, what's really wrong? I mean, why can't we just let people love whoever they want to love? Why can't a woman be joined to another woman? Why can't a man be joined to another man? And here's the simple yet biblical answer. It's because it's impossible. It's impossible. It's physically impossible and therefore contradicts the essence of God's design for male and female in marriage in every way. And listen, because it is physically impossible and for other reasons we'll get to, it is philosophically implausible. It's logically inconsistent for something to be designed with intention and purpose and then somehow optimized in a way that is contrary to that purpose. This is not a reasonable or plausible way of thinking. But more than a simply pragmatic argument, as we've seen in previous weeks, a man and a man or a woman and a woman is implausible mainly because of what male and female and marriage mean. What it means, namely, male and female and marriage have been designed from the beginning to picture, to symbolize, to dramatize a much deeper relationship as we're going to see in a few moments, the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage from the beginning was designed to reflect this beautiful gospel and that illustration as we've seen a few weeks ago breaks down completely when you abandon maleness and femaleness and heterosexuality as an exclusive arrangement for marriage. So, loved ones, God, the all-wise creator who existed eternity, eternally excuse me, from eternity past and into eternity future, this God has a very purposeful and intentional design. Now, I need to say that it would be very unloving and even foolish of me to speak about these things without acknowledging the reality that due to the fall, human beings suffer confusion. This is true. This is why there's so much brokenness in the world. Sin came into the world. After the fall, there's, just, there's confusion about who we are, what we were created to do. The essence of humanity, even in most recent years, is under attack. There is mass confusion. The, the image of God in man has been marred by sin. And, loved ones, it is true that there are people who have legitimate struggles with same-sex attraction. We, we shouldn't speak in a way that is insensitive to these legitimate struggles. But what we cannot do in the name of love, because there's no love without truth, what we cannot do in the name of love is affirm sinful behavior that contradicts what God himself has said is good because this will ultimately lead people into further confusion and further devastation. The answer is to stand firmly on the truth and how many know that the truth in these days, this truth that I'm talking about today is massively unpopular. It's massively countercultural. 
The answer is to stand on this truth in season and out of season when people love the truth, when people hate the truth. We stand on the truth, that which is natural and observable, and from there we seek to help people with truth and pray with people and teach people the truth and form a biblical worldview apart from which there can be no happiness or joy or fulfillment or satisfaction. Every other worldview is massively inconsistent in a vast array of ways. The biblical worldview is the only consistent worldview. And so, God has said that marriage is a union of exclusivity, one man and one woman. Let me just stop here and say this, loved ones. If you are here in this room and you struggle with same-sex attraction, and you want to lean into the truth, we are here for you to tell you the truth, to usher you and guide you into the truth, to love you and walk with you in the midst of your struggle and your confusion and even your doubts. We want to be that for you. So God has said that marriage is a union of exclusivity. One man, one woman. Secondly, this, God has said that marriage is a union of uh, permanence, a leaving and cleaving. Leaving and cleaving. Notice verse 24, the second part. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, notice it, and hold fast uh, to his wife. The old King James Version says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. The idea in the original Hebrew is one of being joined together to stick to, to cling to. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, stick to his wife, cleave to his wife. So right away we see God's intention for marriage as a permanent union. What is uh, stuck together, what is glued together, is not to be torn apart. That's why on the screen for you, Jesus said in Matthew 19, 46, when he was asked about divorce, he said this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Don't you know this? Jesus is saying. Jesus is pointing all the way back to the creation story. And then he adds his own commentary. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So again, I want you to notice how Jesus roots his answer about the permanence of marriage in the creation account. And he adds this commentary from the mouth of the most prolific and masterful teacher who's ever walked on the face of the earth, the creator, God himself, Jesus Christ incarnate. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a huge deal. What is the meaning of marriage? Well, it's a union of permanence. Now, I really do care about everybody in this church and I have faces in my mind as I'm preparing these messages and I, I want to be clear and I want to be caring and I want to be pastoral this morning, loved ones. First, I want to be clear. The origin story of humanity and marriage makes no provision for divorce or separation in God's original design. They're supposed to cling to one another, glued together in a permanent union. That's God's intention for marriage from the beginning. I want to be clear about that. But secondly, I want to be caring because what I just said, while it is 100% true, what I just said is also very heartbreaking for people in this room today. Because some of you understand this, but your marriage has failed. And this is crushing you. Or some of you didn't know this, didn't understand this, and your marriage has failed, and now you're living with regret. Or for some of you, your marriage is very difficult. And you wish that you could get out. And you're despairing, and you're tempted to give up. 
I want you to know that we care deeply about all the different circumstances represented. I know that there's a lot, even in this room. But finally, I want to be pastoral. And we understand that there's quite literally no end to the differing and complex circumstances of marriages that are in trouble. I mean, when I tell you there's no end to the complexity and the differing circumstances, I'm telling you, it never ceases to amaze me, a new situation and just how different it was from the last time. And I can't just apply a script to it. It's just every situation is different. It's complex in so many different ways. So I say that because I can't even begin to navigate applications in this sermon that will address everyone's pain. But what I will do is commend to you the absolute necessity of the body of Christ. Did you know that most husbands and wives struggle in their marriages secretly? Did you know that most husbands and wives struggle and they're ashamed to let anyone know the nature of their struggles? I mean, I can, we can't tell that couple. They're so happy. They're going to look at us like we're messed up. Why can't we just be like them? But we're not. And so we can't talk to them. And that couple right there, they, I'm sure they have their issues, but we can't, we can't go to them. Like, what are they going to think of us? So many husbands and wives struggle secretly and carry shame for years and years about the troubles in their marriage. They continue to white-knuckle their way through, but with no resolution. And with each passing year, the root issues never get addressed, and the marriage slowly erodes. That is a reality for so many people. And so I want to commend to you the body of Christ. That husbands and wives should not struggle alone. Marriages should not struggle alone. We need each other. Yes, we need pastors and elders. Yes, we need group leaders and deacons. Yes, but we just need the family. And I wonder if there's just one married couple in the room, just one, that for you, you're hearing my voice and you're saying, man, that's us. We are suffering in our marriage and no one knows about it and we're on the verge of giving up. Let me commend to you the body of Christ. Lean in. And finally, People who struggle in their marriages need to know that they will be met with grace and not condemnation. They will be met with the truth and not capitulation. Here's the exhortation. Let us be a community that understands the true things. Marriage is designed to be a permanent union. Leave and cleave but serves one another with grace when people around us are genuinely struggling and they feel like they can't cleave anymore. It's the weight of the burdens is pulling them apart. We need to lean into those and be a place that is a place of truth and grace. Did you know that the Bible says in John chapter one that the Lord Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. I want to be like that, don't you? Grace and truth. And so as God has said that the union of marriage is a union of permanence, leaving and cleaving, let's help one another finish well in our marriages there's one more thing. God has said that marriage is a union of exclusivity. One man, one woman, permanence, leaving and cleaving. Finally, this God has said that marriage is a union of, you can jot this down, unity. A one flesh. One flesh. Look at verse 24 again in your Bible. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Here it is. And they shall become one flesh. 
And one commentator, Kenneth Matthews, writes this. He writes, marriage involves the two united in commitment. Two parties are bound by stipulations, forming a new entity or relationship. Two people, although freed from their parents, are not isolated or independent. They become dependent and responsible toward one another. They are united. One flesh. One flesh speaks of the fact that God created the woman from the man. They are of the same substance. Bone of the same bone, flesh of the same flesh. But one flesh also speaks of the beauty and the unity of the sexual union. Men and women have been designed by God to express a oneness and a unity that permeates all of the marriage bond and it is expressed uniquely and pictured uniquely in their physical intimacy. One flesh, the two become one. This is a miracle. Marriage is a miracle. And of course, what Satan does is he takes the beautiful miracle of God. He takes the expression of sexuality in the context of marriage and he twists it. And he perverts it. And he utterly destroys it and all that it is designed to symbolize in marriage. This is why, loved ones, sex outside of marriage is wrong. Because it violates God's design of one man, one woman, permanently bonded together, forever united as one flesh. A lot of people wonder, why are Christians so stuffy about this? I mean, as long as two people love each other, I mean, if they're committed to each other, what's the problem? I mean, isn't marriage just a piece of paper anyways? Like, why are Christians so hung up on this? They, people should be able to express their love in the context of sexual intimacy regardless of marriage. But this, loved ones, I want you to see is a very shallow and surface level understanding that fails to grasp what marriage is and what sexuality pictures. You see, God is a brilliant designer. God is a fascinating designer designer the apostle paul says it plainly in first corinthians 6 16 he says to the corinthian church riddled with immorality he says or do you not know that he who joined is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her for as it is written notice the two will become one flesh. I want you to notice how paul just like jesus roots his argument in the creation account when I understand what marriage is all about, you've got to go back to creation, your creation account. And while Paul is addressing specifically people who are hooking up with prostitutes, that's not the main issue. His point is this, sexual intimacy pictures an unbreakable unity, the one flesh union. And when you hook up with two people or three people or five people or 10 people or 20 people, what you're doing, you're being joined and ripped and joined and ripped and joined and ripped in a way that makes a mockery of God's design. And in a way, if you're honest with yourself, is deeply saddening to you. If you're honest. Whether people admit it or not, promiscuity, sexual promiscuity, people want to go online and social media and talk about how amazing it is to be so promiscuous, they don't feel that way. I promise you, they don't feel because they're not made for that. They can, they can try to convince themselves. All You can try to convince yourself all you want. You're not made that way. You're not designed that way. And so marriage is a union of unity, one flesh. So forming a biblical worldview, the meaning of marriage is rooted in creation Pray that we understand God's intention a bit more clearly today and the many implications this has for our lives. And I have to say, if you are here today and you are married or you are single and you have fallen short in this area, I know what Satan wants to whisper in your ear right now. He wants to say, you messed up. 
See what that preacher is saying? Yeah, that's right. Joined, torn apart. Joined, torn apart. You're messed up. You're used goods. Nothing good can come from your life. This is not what God will say to you. God will say to you if you will come with faith and repentance. You will find at the foot of the cross a grace and a mercy and a love and a forgiveness that you never thought was possible and a restoration and a redemption. Amen? This is our gospel. This is our hope. And so God has said that marriage is a union of exclusivity, one man, one woman, permanence, leaving and cleaving, unity, a one flesh. That's the meaning of marriage from the creation account. But there's something else I want to share with you. The meaning of marriage is not only rooted in creation. Secondly and finally, the meaning of marriage is reinforced uh, throughout Scripture. Okay? So I told you in the previous two messages that we're going to get practical. We're going to dig in a little bit. And I need you to bear with me because I want to help you. It's throughout the rest of Scripture that we find an even fuller and practical picture of God's intention for marriage. So in the time that we have left, I want to leave you with a few practical things. First, I want to speak to men and husbands, married men who are husbands, single men who desire to be husbands. I want you to listen up. The whole Bible reinforces God's design for marriage and creation. More specifically, note this, the servant leadership of husbands. The servant leadership of husbands. I want you to quickly take your Bible and turn all the way into the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Quickly turn there. I want to hear pages turning. Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. Important for you to have your eyes on a copy of God's Word. I was going to put it on the screen, but I'd rather you flip there and you can make your own notes in your Bible. That's so important. It's so good for us to do. But I want to show you how the Bible shows us the design for marriage, specifically through the servant leadership of husbands. As you turn into Ephesians 5, 25 to 33, I'm going to read verse 25, the Apostle Paul's word to husbands here in Ephesians. He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, husbands, men, married husbands, single men who desire to be husbands, I want you to notice how the servant leader uh, loves his wife. You see it in the text? Just as Christ loved the church. You see that? And gave himself up for her. Husbands are to love their wives. We are to love our wives by laying down our lives. That's how Christ loves the church. You see the parallel? Talked about that in previous weeks. We're going to continue to see it unfold in this message. The parallel between Christ and the church and husbands and wives. Husbands are to love their, lives by, uh, love their wives by laying down their lives. Look at verses 26 to 29. Listen carefully to God's word. It says, That he might sanctify her, Christ to the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Watch this. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. I want you to notice, men, I want you to notice how the servant leader nourishes and cherishes his wife. Just as Christ washes us with the word of God and works for our holiness and treats us as his own body because we are his body, the Bible tells us. So husbands are called by God to cherish and nourish our wives just as we would our own bodies because we are one body, one flesh. Notice finally, how the Apostle Paul ties all of these exhortations directly to the creation account in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 31. Paul goes on to say, Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul is brilliant. The Bible is brilliant. The theological themes that are being intertwined all throughout the scriptures, it's impossible for this to be a man-made book. This is supernatural, and this book is supernaturally intended by God, and it's coming to you in a supernatural way right now because of the nature and the inspiration and the inerrancy of the book. The Apostle Paul roots his exhortations into the creation account, and he's tying it all together. He's showing us how God's design in creation works itself out in our lives. Husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church. What God intended in creation is pointing to something else. It's pointed to a better marriage. We're going to get there. So, really quickly, let's get a bit more practical for the men. Then we'll move on to the ladies, the wives. What does this love practically look like? Well, look on the screen. Colossians 3.18 gives us one way. The Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. Notice and do not be harsh with them. The servant leader husband, the one placed in the garden initially to lead, provide, and protect, is commanded to progressively and intentionally and prayerfully put harshness away and cultivate gentleness. How do I love my wife like Christ loves the church? Well, Paul wants to address something very specific, something that men are prone to. He says, don't be harsh with her. Don't be rough with her. Love her like Christ loves the church. Nourish her. Put to death harshness and cultivate gentleness. One more, 1 Peter 3.7 on the screen. Peter says, likewise husbands, notice, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Notice, so that your prayers may not be hindered. A few thoughts here. The servant leader husband, the one placed in the garden to lead, provide, and protect, is not fulfilling his purpose when he lives with his wife in an unreasonable way in a way that doesn't lead provide and protect for her emotionally and spiritually such that she feels understood you may feel husbands you are being very clear you may feel husbands that you understand but if she does not feel like you understand then you may think you understand all day long but if she feels you don't understand then the answer is you don't understand amen wives and I'm preaching to myself Okay? So live with your wives in an understanding way. That's one way we can practically live this out. The servant leader husband, the one placed in the garden to lead, protect, and provide, is doing the opposite of what he is designed to do when he dishonors her, when he treats her like one of the guys in the gym. Paul says, honor her. She's the weaker vessel, not weaker in terms of inferiority or her essence or nature, but she is a nurturer, she is tender, she is generally smaller than you. Don't be rough with her. And by the way, this is so serious, Peter says, that the failure in this area causes God to ignore your prayers. You see that? There are some husbands, they're on their knees praying for a better job. They're just, God, give me this better job. But they're rough with their wives, and God's like, don't talk to me until you get things right with your wife. You see that in 1 Peter 3, 7? They're praying, Lord, just help us to be more stable financially. Lord, I'm calling on you. I'm fasting, but he's, he's, he's not being understanding to his wife. God says, come back to me later when you're, when you're more understanding with your wife. Even some pastors. God, move in our church. God, do a great thing in our church. God says, ha, ha, ha. Get things together in your house. It's one of the qualifications of an elder, isn't it? that your house is in order, that you're living with your wife in an understanding way. This is profound. There's so much I can say about this. Live with your wives in an understanding way that your prayers may not be hindered. So some of us need to go home and repent to our wives. And some of us need to ask our wives to forgive us 
because we have not lived with them in an understanding way. But we've been rush, rough and harsh. So, husbands, we are servant leaders. We love by laying down our lives in sacrificial service to those we lead, beginning with our wives. Harshness and roughness are incompatible with the tender, tenders and cultivators of the garden we were designed to be. So in the words of Puritan John Owen, Owen he said, let's be killing sin or it will be killing us. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's all we have time for. We move on to the ladies, to the wives. The whole Bible reinforces God's design for marriage in creation. More specifically, not only the servant leadership of husbands, but now this, the respectful submission of wives. The respectful submission of wives. Let me give you a bit of a definition, ladies, of what submission is. John Piper was helpful to me. Uh, This is what he said, and I found it just a helpful way to describe submission. He says, submission, it is the disposition, it is the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It is an attitude that says, I delight to take, I delight you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. I, I like the way he put that. It's a disposition to yield to her husband's leadership, to long for his leadership, to submit us, to say, I want you to take the lead. I want to follow you. It's a burden for me to have to lead. I don't don't want that. It's not what God has called me to do. We saw that last week. And so let's see it in the Bible. Ephesians 5, 22, it should be there. Before he gets to the instructions on husbands that we just talked about, he says this, Paul, to the church in Ephesus. He says, wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's important, as to the Lord. Notice first that a wife's submission to her husband is not a suggestion, loved ones. It is a command. I want you to notice also that this command is first an act of obedience, submission to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. When wives submit to their husbands, they're first submitting to the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23. Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Notice carefully that the pattern for a wife's submission to her husband, we've talked about this, is the church's submission to Jesus Christ. You want to know how to submit to your husband? You want to know what this looks like? Well, Paul gives us a picture. He says, look at how the church submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, the willful submission to the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to see the pattern? You want to know how it needs to play out in your life? He gives us a picture, the picture that marriage from the beginning is designed to illustrate and to show. That means then, that marriage from the beginning has been designed to picture the life-saving gospel and the relationship between Christ and the church. And secondly, therefore, that a wife's submission to her husband is not demeaning or degrading in any way. How do you know that, Jason? Because when I look at the church's submission to Christ, it's not demeaning. Christ is not domineering. He's not trying to uh, exercise unreasonable authority. He's not trying to hurt us. That's why, husbands, you take your cue from Jesus, but wives, you take your cue from how the church responds. We willfully submit to our Savior, don't we? Therefore, it is not demeaning that a wife should willfully submit to her husband's leadership. The picture keeps our theological framework intact. Verse 24. Paul says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Sometimes I'm driving, and my wife is there, and and she's like, let's put the address in the GPS. 
She's so humble and sweet. She's like, in her mind, she's like, we're not going in the right direction. <laughs> so she says, honey, let's put the address in our GPS. I'm good. I'm good. And, and she's, <laughs> oh, what does it hurt? Just like, let's punch it in the GPS. Like, maybe it'll give us an alternate route. Like, maybe we'll get there fast. She's so sweet and tender. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. How many know that sometimes husbands are not getting it right? Right? But the command to wives is submit in everything. Willfully yield to leadership. It doesn't mean that you can't express your opinion. It doesn't mean that you can't express your desires. No, in fact, if a husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church, then he's leaning in to what his wife thinks. What do you think, honey? I'm thinking about making this decision. What, what, what do you think? What, what direction do you think we should go in? Because whatever direction I want us to go in, like you have to be okay with it. Because if you're not okay with it, I can't be okay with it. Right, so we've talked about the husband taking his cues from Jesus Christ. But wives, your husband is not Jesus Christ. He's not perfect. And so when Paul says submit in everything, that presents a bit of a challenge for us sometimes, doesn't it? But the question we need to answer is not whether we submit when our husbands are getting it right. We gotta go with what God has said. And the Bible says to wives, submit in everything. That means a wife's submission to her husband is not circumstantial, but the disposition to yield to the loving leadership of a husband is in everything. What's at stake? What's lost if a wife assumes submission sometimes or only when it seems best to her? Well, I think you know the answer. The picture of the gospel is lost. But some of you are asking, submit in everything? I know. Some of you wives are asking, submit in everything? Even if he's leading me to sin? Even if he's abusing me? Let me just be very clear, loved ones. Wives, your allegiance is first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just be very specific here. If a husband is abusing his delegated authority and attempting to lead his wife into sin, a wife must obey God rather than man. Acts chapter 5, uh, 29. And even in that context, you can maintain a disposition, a heart of submission. But you don't have to follow your husband into sin. And if a husband is abusing his wife, let me be very clear here. If a husband is abusing his wife, she must get out of that dangerous situation immediately. Because every woman has been created in the image of God and possesses inherent value from that status as an image bearer. And Jesus Christ is a liberator of those who are truly oppressed, Luke chapter 4, 18. And the injustice of abuse in marriage is not God's will for any wife. It is not. So much more we can say there. But others of you are thinking, that's clear, Jason. Abuse, get out, um, leading me into sin, obey God rather than man. But some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, but what if he's not abusing me? And what if he's not asking me to sin, but he's an unbeliever? Or he's not living out his calling as a husband who leads, provides, and protects? Like he's not in the abuser category. He's not in the leading me to the sin category, but he's just like, sometimes he's just, he's rough sometimes. Sometimes he's a jerk. Can I ignore him then? Well, Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 3. He put this on the screen for you. I don't have time to go into all the verses that are on the screen, but I'm gonna highlight verse uh, one and two. Peter says this. He says, likewise, wives, 
he repeats Paul's admonition. He says, be subject or submit to your own husbands. Watch this now. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. So wives, your disposition of submission, the Bible says, your respectful and honorable conduct, the purity of your motives, the Bible says, has a powerful impact on a husband who is not living out his calling. Peter says, the one who doesn't obey the word. But this requires endurance. And it requires patience. And this is distinctly Christian. Talk about women being strong as we did last week. Talk about women being empowered nurturers. I know many women who are in very troubled marriages or have heard of many women in the past in very troubled marriages who insist to be a woman of prayer, to let her conduct be godly before her husband, to willfully submit to his leadership even though she knows he's not obeying the word all the time he's not asking me to sin but there's better ways to go about it she knows but she prays she loves she submits she respects she serves and sure enough that man changes but sometimes it takes a long time this is the exhortation if you're here and you feel like your husband's a jerk sometimes. Let your conduct and your submission shine a powerful light in your home and believe with faith that he is going to see that light consistently displayed over time and God is going to use that light and God is going to change his heart and he will take that place of leadership very soon. Jesus said something very similar in his Sermon on the Mount to all Christians. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's something powerful about the world seeing our good works and saying there must be a God. And there's something powerful about a husband who doesn't obey the word looking at the honorable conduct of his wife and saying, there must be a God. And maybe the word for a wife or two or ten in this room today is, if he's not abusing you, if he's not leading you into sin, he's just a little bit hard to live with. You can win him without a word. Let your light shine. And let's trust God to do that work in the lives of many men. Isn't it amazing, loved ones, that the Bible begins uh, with a wedding in Genesis? And the Bible ends with a wedding in Revelation. The first bride and groom is Adam and Eve. The final bride and groom is the church and Jesus Christ. The first marriage was devastated by sin. The final marriage is blessed by Jesus Christ. The first union was marked by shame. The final union is marked by freedom from guilt and shame. And for the Christian... Marriage with all its brokenness in this life is designed to point to a marriage of perfect wholeness in the next life. There is a marriage supper of the Lamb coming. And it will be a perfect union with Jesus Christ, the perfect servant leader, and the church being perfected into the image of Jesus Christ, the image of God that was marred by sin, perfected and restored and culminated in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. And one day we will eat a meal at the marriage supper of the Lamb.
with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And there we will know a love like none other. Oh, loved ones, when husbands love their wives like Christ loved the church, and when wives respect their husbands as the church submits to Christ, the world receives a tangible invitation to that wedding feast. They see hope, they see love, they see forgiveness, they see a Savior who laid down his life for his bride. May we look to the hope of the gospel as we seek to live out manhood and womanhood and marriages that glorify God and speak a good and profound word to a watching world. Amen? Let's pray together. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.